Thanks. Great job. Really grateful for that uh, time of worship. It's powerful to me that um, today we won't focus on this too much in the sermon, but today is Trinity Sunday throughout the world. Uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the reality that God is three in one is being lifted up and the, the, the love relationship that God the Father has for the Son, has for the Spirit, the fact that we're invited into that and that we can share in that and then extend that to others is a powerful reality that I hope is um, something that you experience as we sing together and something that we continue to experience as we open the Word and we receive instruction from the Word together. There's this essential communion. There's this essential sharing that is a, a, such a core part of why we gather together and why we're not just in front of a TV screen by ourselves, but why we've gathered together so that we can commune with this truth and interact with the reality of the presence of God here with us. It's so critical, and it's so amazing that we get to be invited into not just some, some sort of uh, byproduct of God, but that we get to be invited into the very reality, the reality of God, the presence of God. Uh, himself. So uh, welcome to Emmaus Church. I'm so glad you're here. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We'll hand you one. We'll be in Luke's gospel today, the very last page of the gospel of Luke. Um, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. I think it's on page 738 if you're going to use that Bible. Also, there's baskets underneath the chairs on the ends of aisles, and if you'd pass the baskets down, and if you'd like, you can pull a card out of the basket, fill it out if you'd like to pass on your contact information or a prayer request. And then finally, um, I hope that you will have a notes page doing something a little different to try to support the flow of the teaching this morning, turning the notes page sideways. It didn't print incorrectly. Um, so it's trying, to, trying to have a little bit of fun with that. Grab a notes page if you need, or raise your hand, and one of the ushers can help you there. All right. Uh, and then finally, I said finally, but I'm going to say it one more time. Um, there is a membership class after church today at the Hub, at our church office downtown Lincoln. If you would like to learn more about what membership means here at Emmaus, you're welcome to have lunch with us and uh, join us for about a 50-minute class. Sandy is here. She's on staff, our community pastor. And if you would like to come to lunch, please let her know if you haven't already so we can have enough pizza because classes are better with pizza. I think. Okay, you ready? I'm excited about this. Last week we started a new short series called Seasons, Preparing for the Good. I reflected on some of the challenges and the joys of our early years as a church community. Our church community is about 11 years old. I shared some pictures last week like this. Uh, this was the, gosh, that's washed out. I didn't look quite that bad that day, but... Um, that's 2004 when we got started. Here's a couple other pictures. This is just fun. This is Josh and me on the, one of the first Sundays that we gathered. This is one of our, I think this is our grand opening here in this facility 10 years ago. Uh, we said we probably will be there about three years. Would you rent us your cafeteria? But we had some good food. This is uh, my daughter and Emma Kate Stanfill, who uh, they were sitting together last week, which was kind of fun. Um, there, some early days at an old office in a house that we had. That was one of our first gatherings, one of the first women's gatherings. It's so cool to just look back and see uh, some of the faces and how we've grown together and shared life together. Uh, it, it seems to me to have this, a similar effect as just sort of the, the Christmas time where you reflect back on, on uh, experiences that we've had as a family. Um, there's significance in this, right? There's, we're sharing life, and that's a big deal. 
that's brave, it's courageous, it requires risk and vulnerability, and those who stick with it see a value in the church that just grows and inflates and becomes um, a stronger and stronger part of who they are and the legacy that they leave. And, and, and I hope that you're experiencing that in your life. Um, I also, last, in, in addition to sharing pictures last week, I shared some of my frustrations about how, and I, and I mentioned that in February, I mentioned it again last week, that I, I've, as a leader of, of our church, I've, had a, a, I've struggled to find a real clear sense of vision for the next season of our church, the, the way forward from here. Uh, in recent years, I've, I've had a strong sense, for years I had a really strong sense of who we are called to be and what we're called to do, specifically from years zero to five. I had a real clear plan, and we followed that plan, and, and though I've remained really committed to our church's core purposes of transformation and community and compassion, uh, it's been difficult, a little bit more difficult and increasingly difficult in the recent years for me to sort of see how we live this life out together moving forward in, in real practical ways. In some ways, and this will sound maybe a bit blunt, but in some ways it sort of felt like we've been a little stuck. Maybe I've just been a little stuck. I've not exactly known how and where we go from here. I don't mean, I don't mean stuck as in we're not doing anything good. Not at all, because we're doing a lot of good together. A lot of lives are being affected in good ways through the ministries of our church. Specifically, our ministries of compassion, which for a long time took a, real, uh, took a long time to take root, have now blossomed in recent years. And I think I'm more proud of ministries like our ministries to single parents, um, our role in beginning the Axiom Youth Center downtown, our financial partnership with Agape International Mission that does work with the slave, with uh, human trafficking. I'm proud of that work. I feel like we can point to ways that we are making a difference, and that's a good thing. So I don't mean stuck as in frozen, but I do mean stuck as in waiting, kind of in a waiting season. It feels like we're in a waiting period. Last Sunday, I used the metaphor of a cross-section of a tree and the rings of a tree and how you can tell the story of a tree by reading the, the, the rings. And sometimes the rings reveal seasons of drought, and sometimes they reveal seasons of real flourishing. We talked about the season of waiting. And in some sense, I think our church has been in a waiting season. And waiting is not something that we typically do very well in our culture because we're not required to wait for almost anything anymore. Uh, somebody, I had a lot, of, a lot of interesting comments and stories and um, conversations in the last week. Somebody said, I don't even wait at stoplights. I pull my, my, I mean, they wait, they stop the car at stoplights as well, but they pull their cell phone out and they redeem the time, right? And they, and they check their messages uh, because they've got at least 30 seconds and they don't want to waste that time, right? And, and, and I, and I kind of resonated with that. Uh, I said last week that to me personally, it almost always feels like waiting equals waste of time. Waiting equals waste of time. And, and I heard from several of you over the last days who have been in long waiting seasons and have struggled with the feeling like this time is being wasted right now, like nothing is happening right now. It feels like there's no purpose in this waiting time. I'm not doing anything now. I'm just waiting. And last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. And we read how Jesus instructed his disciples to wait. Jesus instructed his followers to wait for the power that they would need to accomplish the fulfillment of his mission, which was to restore all things to himself. So last Sunday, all around the world, Christians celebrated the birthday of the church, the filling of the Holy Spirit, or of the disciples with the Holy Spirit, which we read about in Acts chapter 2. 
at how the Christian movement begins. And I try to encourage us, especially we who are waiting, especially we who are waiting, that this is not a waste of time. Waiting is not a waste of time, that there is a purpose in waiting, and that part of God's plan for his church is to wait. That probably was the most helpful statement that came out of my preparation, was the, the part of God's plan is to wait. It's part of God's plan. It's not you're missing God's plan. Mm-mm. It's not um, get your act together, right? It's, it might be, and it has been in specific times in the past in Scripture, part of God's intended purpose for the church to wait. And if you're waiting for a good thing, then you're waiting for a gift from God. We spent a bunch of time in James's letter a few uh, weeks ago, and James says that all good gifts come from the Father in heaven. And so that means that if you're waiting for a gift from God, you can trust that God will give you that gift when he's ready to give it and when you're ready to receive it. Have you ever given a gift to somebody and they just don't even appreciate it because they don't even recognize the value of it? They're not ready to receive that gift yet. So a good parent will withhold the good gift, will require their child to wait for it until they're ready to receive it because it's so good they want the gift to be received. We can't, that means that waiting doesn't have to be a waste of time. Waiting can be filled with purpose. Waiting can be filled with meaning. We can actually wait faithfully. We can anticipate the good. We can wait actively. Waiting feels passive to me. It doesn't have to be. Waiting can be active. In other words, it can be a season of preparation. You can be tilling the ground. You can be surrendering your plans. You can be letting go of control. It doesn't have to look the way I think it's going to look. It doesn't have to feel the way I think it's going to feel. Right? So that's the story of Pentecost. The followers of Jesus, like many of you, waiting for the power to restore all things. Waiting for the power to restore all things. And then receiving it. That's what happens at Pentecost. So last week, we talked about the season of waiting. Today, I want to talk about the season of moving. I want to talk about the season of moving. In Scripture, seasons of waiting are always followed by seasons of moving. We focus on the moving stories. Uh, Noah and his family in the ark, moving away from destruction. We forget there, were, there was like almost 100 years of preparation and waiting. We focus on uh, Joseph ascending to the second in command in Egypt. We don't necessarily tell the story the years of apparently wasted time when this guy was in prison, when he was sold by his brothers and mistreated and, and, and all this waiting for what is the point of all this? We just tell them moving at the end. We tell the story of hundreds of years later, uh, the descendants of Joseph now become slaves in Egypt, freeing from, being freed from slavery, moving across the Red Sea into freedom. We, we don't necessarily focus on the 400 years of waiting for God to deliver. We like the moving stories. We don't like the waiting stories. And the good thing about it, I guess, is today is I'm going to focus on the moving thing. But I want you to understand that in Scripture, seasons of Waiting always lead to seasons of of moving. This is true with Pentecost as well. The early Christians are waiting because Jesus told them to for the filling of the Holy Spirit. They only have to wait 10 days. How were they to know it was only going to be 10 days? But they wait. They receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They wait for the gift. They receive it. And then very literally, a movement begins. It's called Christianity. You probably have heard of it. It changed the world. So they wait. They receive the gift 
that God gives when God's ready and when they're ready. That initiates a literal movement, a season of movement, which we can read about in the book of Acts. It's just constantly, it's why it's called the Acts of the Apostles, the things they did while they were moving, while they were you know, responding to the direction of God and fulfilling the plan of God. The difficult thing, I think, about seasons of waiting is we never know how long they're going to be. You don't get that piece of information up front. Sometimes you're in an office and it says, estimated waiting time, or you're on the phone. But we don't get that with God. God doesn't say, estimated waiting time, 39 years. He doesn't <laughs> tell us that kind of stuff, right? And, and that's a good thing, I guess. You never know how long you're going to wait. Good thing about waiting seasons is that they are preparing you. So the hard thing about waiting seasons is you don't know how long they last or they're going to last. The good thing about waiting seasons is, and please believe this, please consider believing this, that this waiting season that you're in is preparing you for a moving season. It is preparing you for a moving season. At least it is supposed to be preparing you for a moving season. It's supposed to lead to action. Sometimes we wait so long. Here's another potential downfall. We wait so long for provision. We wait so long for clarity. We wait so long for deliverance. We wait so long for comfort. We wait so long for whatever it is that we're waiting for that when it finally comes, we celebrate, we just bask in the provision. Oh, this is awesome. We just receive the comfort that God has given. And we're like, yes, I got what I was waiting for. Let's celebrate. And of course, it's good to celebrate. But we can be so focused on the fact that the wait is over that we can sometimes lose sight of why we got the job we were waiting for, of why we received the comfort that we were waiting for, of why we were given direction finally now, given direction. We can lose sight of why that happened. And we can just sort of sit around and talk about it, right? And forget that the whole reason for what was given was to move, was to do something with it. Right? So yes, wait well. Yes, celebrate when, it's, when it comes, when what you're waiting for finally arrives. But don't get stuck there, and we get stuck there. We Christians sit down and we talk about stuff a lot. We talk a lot. We talk a lot. What would this look like? What would that look like? What does this mean? What do you think about that? And we can fail to then move and respond and do. So I think the best way to illustrate the idea that seasons of waiting are intended to be seasons, are intended to lead to seasons of moving, is to tell the best story in the Bible. It's my favorite story in the Bible. And, and I want to use the Emmaus Road story, uh, not just because it's the best story in the Bible, in my opinion, but because it's, it's our story. It's the story of our church. It's the story that we that compelled us to begin, and it's the story that continues to fuel us as we move into the next season of ministry together. It will be new to some of you. It will be old to many of you because you've heard even me speak about it before. But let me give you just a short, an abbreviated version of a personal journey that I've been on just this year, 2016. In January, I preached at a friend's church. He asked me to preach on the Emmaus Road story. When I got to the end of my planned sermon, I write my sermons out. You can't tell, I hope, but they're written out. The last word is written on this piece of paper. When I got to the end of that sermon, I kept preaching. I don't usually do that. I turned the last page, I said the last word, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the end of the story according to the way I have told it, but it is not the end of the story. It kind of, kind of was rough for me. I was like, so I, got, I had to keep preaching. I just had to keep preaching. And then, that was in January. In February, I went to Thailand, and I was asked to speak eight times on this story. I, only, I got off the plane in Thailand with six talks. I didn't have the end. I wasn't sure how to end. I wasn't sure how the people would respond to what, what I was saying. So when I was in Thailand, 
Clarity came, again, about the end of the story, the, the last few sentences of the story. And on the last day I was there, I got to preach two different talks about the very end of the story. And then in March, that was January, that was February, and then in March, the Emmaus staff and our leadership board began working through this refreshing or re-articulating of our church's vision. And I thought that process would probably lead us into some new images, some new narrative, but what we, what we found and we think that the next season of ministry is going to be all about the, 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 the last few words of this story. We, in other words, we think that we've discovered clarity on the next season of ministry for our community at, at the end of the Emmaus Road story. So let's turn to what has become a really familiar story to some of you, to what may be a brand new story for you, End of Luke, chapter 24, it's the story of the road to Emmaus. I'm going to try to tell it quickly and focus in on the end and um, invite us to consider an insight that maybe you've seen all along, but it's, it's relatively new to me. The story begins, and I encourage you to just kind of turn that notes or fill that notes page out, and um, it should help you engage. I'll put the scripture on the screens as well, but it's always good to have it in front of you. The story begins with two disciples who are hitting the road. The disciples are done. This is the story of a road trip, which I don't know if you take road trips. I take road trips when I'm tired of, when I need a break, <laughs> right? When I need a break, when I'm getting out, when I'm taking a break. Here's how, this, here's how it begins, because they need more than a break. In fact, uh, they're in a really dark place. It says, now that same day, it's referring to the Easter morning, the very first Easter, two of the disciples of Jesus were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where Jesus was just killed on Friday. This is now Sunday, and they're leaving Jerusalem. They're going to walk seven miles to another place called Emmaus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So at this point in the story, you've got a couple of travelers who are confused. Write that down. They are disappointed uh, they're deeply disappointed. They've spent the last three years following Jesus, believing he was the Messiah, and that just was proven to be incorrect because he was killed. Messiahs can't get killed, according to their thinking. They're quitting. They're not just quitting their community. They're quitting their faith. They're done. They're done. They're, it is done, and they're leaving it. They're quitting. They're, they are without hope. They place their hope in Jesus. That didn't work out. They, put all, they invested in one company, and it just went down. And now they have no hope anymore. Here's what happens next. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So this is powerful. Jesus joins them. God's with everybody. We just don't recognize him most of the time. God's with everybody. Jesus joins them. He goes to where they are. He joins them in their brokenness. He listens. In the next few verses, he's going to correct them. He's going to teach them. He's going to reignite, re-inspire hope in them. He's going to share not just their journey, which is akin to their life. Not only is he going to join their life, but he's also going to share the word, the truth, uh, the truth of, of, uh, of God and the hope of God with them. Here's how the story continues. 
verse 17. Jesus asks them, what are you talking together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of the most powerful visual images from this story. It should communicate to you how deeply they were disappointed, how, how dark their pain and doubt um, was at that point. A simple question, what are you talking about, drops them. They stop walking. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus asks a follow-up question, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine it's Easter morning? You don't know it's Easter yet. Some women from your community go to where Jesus was buried, and they come back, and they tell you there's no body there. You know it's the third day. Something about the third day rings a bell with you. You're just not totally sure what it is. The other companions, they go, affirm what the women had said, but you're so devastated, you still quit. You still leave. You're not even willing to hang around and see if this might work out because you just don't have any, any um, space left. You just don't have, you just can't handle one more disappointment. That will just turn you insane. So it's just better if you just are like, you know what? I just can't handle this anymore, and you bail out. That's what's happening here. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe uh, all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses is the first five books of the Bible, the prophets are the rest, explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So at this point in the journey, the travelers are beginning to get captivated by Jesus. Something's happening in them, and it's rekindling the hope that they had three years ago that was fueled for the last three years and then totally wiped out and devastated in the recent days. And so what's going to happen next is they're going to invite Jesus to stay. But it's not just invite him to stay. As we've said before, the Greek word is parabiosomai, which means they compel him. They use force beyond nature or right. They are grabbing his clothes and saying, we got to hear more from you. You must stay with us. In our culture, we would say they would not take no for an answer. Have you ever been invited into, into a meal by somebody? I mean, for me, in my experiences, it's been people of another culture who have just basically forced me to sit down and eat with them. That's the kind of the feeling that you get here. It's like, you've got to stay with us. Here's how Luke reads the story. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly. So they've gone from quitting to suddenly there's passion here again, and it's like a desperate passion. It's like an, it's like a, um, it's like an irrational grasping onto the last thread of possible hope 
and they're going to compel Jesus. They're going to force him beyond means or right to stay with them. They're going to not take no for an answer. They say, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now, um, flip your notes page over um, because now now the story shifts from the road scene to the table scene. So now we go from road to table. And what happens, the critical, the critical move that takes you from road to table is you invite Jesus in. That's why evangelical Christians uh, focus so much on the importance of a prayer in which we invite Jesus into our hearts, is in which we surrender our life to Jesus and actually formally say, Jesus, please be in my life. Lead my life. Um, it's because this is where we shift from the road to the table. This is where we're traveling with Jesus to bringing Jesus into an intimate and personal experience. They do this here. They invite Jesus in. And then once he is at the table, he basically flips it on them. Because when you invite Jesus in, he is no longer a guest. He becomes the host. He takes charge. When you invite Jesus into your life, You're not just saying, come in as my servant, come in as my friend. You're saying, come in and be my master. And so Jesus, he demonstrates that reality here. Because when he's invited into dinner, and yet when he sits down, when I, if I was invited over to the Coons place for dinner, I would sit at their table even if they waited for 45 minutes before she served me her great lasagna. I wouldn't complain. But if I were Jesus, I would sit down and I would say, here's what I have planned for the night, right? Because this is what Jesus does. He's invited in and then he takes control. He leads. And this is, he basically takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. And that's what, that's what happens next. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. I mean, Right there, there's so much right there. Then their eyes were opened. Then he disappears. Or they, their eyes are open. They recognize him, and then he disappears. So here's what I'd encourage you to write down. Jesus, the, the, the encounter transforms the disciples at this point. The encounter with Jesus transforms them. Their eyes are opened. They recognize him. So what was previously confusing, what was previously a cause for despair, gets completely reframed. I don't know if very many of you have had experiences like this. Part of me hopes you never do because it means you've experienced deep pain. Part of me hopes you all will because it reframes deep pain into something for which you actually become grateful because you experience in that place of pain the presence of God. And so in a new place that did not exist in your life before the pain, God then fills that place And you experience the presence of God in a way that you could not experience because you didn't have the capacity for it before the pain. That's a hard truth. That's a severe mercy, C.S. Lewis says. But that's what happens here. Their eyes are opened. They recognize him. Even their despair is completely reframed. And then Jesus disappears. So the disciples have received the clarity that they need. They've received what they need. They've received what they were waiting for. They didn't even realize they were waiting for this. But they were, and they receive what they were waiting for. They received what they were waiting for in Jesus, and I would say this, through the church. They receive what they're waiting for in Jesus. It's Jesus that they're waiting for. 
And it's through the church. How do you find through the church? Because the transformational truth that they encounter comes through word and sacrament in community. Two or more are gathered. Word and sacrament in community, which is the historic definition of the Christian church. We've kind of lost it in the last 200 years, 1,800 years before that. Undisputed, the definition of the Christian church, word and sacrament in community. Not word all by myself. Nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful. That's just simply not the church. Not just gathering around food. That's fantastic. It's just simply not the church. What's the church? Word and sacrament in community. So they experience what they're waiting for in Jesus, but in the context of this sort of pre-church church like experience, which I think is fascinating, which is probably why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? I'm convinced that this, is, that this matters. So the experience, transformational truth through word and sacrament in community, they say, we're not our hearts burning within us. Well, it's now, now it all comes clear. And they're like, oh, weren't our hearts burning within us while he walked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And, and so this is the moment of change. This is the moment of change. And that's why I focus so intently on this moment. For the last 10 years of my life, 12 years of my life, on the table, for, for like over 11 years as we've been a church, the narrative has been, in my mind, road to table. And it served as such a helpful framework for my understanding of the spiritual journey. Road to table. Jesus joins us on the road. He comes to us where we are on the road. Maybe you're at step one. Maybe you're at step 101. It really doesn't matter because Jesus joins you where you are on the road. He enters into your pain. And then he just offers a better way. And then we invite him in. And then he's in charge. And then our lives change through this mysterious and repetitive experience of breaking bread together. And this story explains why we do church the way we do it. And I'm so passionate about the table moment in the journey that I've rarely focused on anything else. And, and, and uh, here's what's wonderful, and here's what's surprising, and here's the challenging reality that I experienced in Folsom and in Thailand and over the last few weeks with our leadership community, and it is this, that the story doesn't actually end there. The story doesn't actually end at the table. The table's the crisis, the table's the climax, the table's the aha, the table's where transformation happens. Nothing happens if the table doesn't happen. So you got to have the table. The table's amazing. But they go back to the road. See, they go back to the road. <laughs> they go back to the road. And that's what I saw and that's what I feel like God keeps leaning in on me. They go back to the road. Here's the way Luke writes it. They got up and returned at once. They got up and returned. Not they got up. I couldn't really do it on paper. But they don't actually get up and go to the next place. They, go, they got up and returned to the place of their pain, to the place of their disillusionment. To all the smells and memories and reminders of the brokenness and the hurt. One time, one time, I was called to go visit a young couple who had lost their baby during childbirth. And as I'm on the phone, where are you? Okay, what floor? Okay, what hall? I returned to the very place that I had lost a child in childbirth. They return to the place of their pain. That's what happens. They go back to the place of their own brokenness. They get up and they go back at once to this place. They return to their faith. They return to their community. 
and they return to their place of disappointment and pain. And the other disciples say, it is true. They tell what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized them. Uh, I think I skipped that. Yeah, the other disciples say, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when? When Jesus broke the bread. And so if you're taking notes here, the, the travelers get up and return. The others... They confirm the reality of the resurrection, and then the travelers tell their story. And what is their story? Their story is the story about the table. They, they tell the story of what happened at the table, how they encountered Jesus, how their, how their perspective was shifted. That's the story. That's their testimony. And as they return and tell their story, they actually join Christ in his mission to restore all things. So their brief season of waiting leads to a massive season of movement. Their brief season of, of waiting. It lead, they only had to wait for a few minutes at that table. And Jesus is all of a sudden bringing what they want and what they long for and what they need. But that leads to this massive season of movement. So for years, I've thought of the Emmaus story as a two-scene story. You got the road, and you got the table. And the story is, you're moving from the road, Jesus is with you, you don't recognize him, you're confused, broken, despairing, and you come from the road to the table where it all becomes clear, and you experience intimacy with Christ. But in fact, it is not a two-scene story. It is a three-scene story. It goes road, table, road again. So it is the story of sharing life, and discovering Jesus, as we've talked about for 11 years, but it is also the story of the restoration of all things. That's the third part of the story. Right? So first, the travelers have personal restoration of their own hope. That's personally restored, their own pain. Secondly, the travelers participate in the restoration of the hope of the whole community. That's the whole going back to their, the other disciples, and they're saying, it is true. And the two travelers are like, yeah, we experienced him too at the table. And then the rest of the book of Acts, which is what comes after Luke. Luke writes Luke, and then Luke writes Acts. The rest of the book of Acts is the beginning of the ministry of the church, the, the, the movement of Christianity, which is a movement of the restoration of all things. And so the full Emmaus story is not actually a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The Emmaus Road story is a 14-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus and back to Jerusalem, right? It's like a U-turn. It's a, it's a, the full story is the story of quitting and despairing and recognizing the presence of Christ, which compels me back to the brokenness of the world with a new message of intimacy and restoration, Intimacy with Christ and the ability to restore all things. It's this return trip that now has me pretty jazzed up, I got to tell you. I'm pretty excited about this return trip, right? For a while, I'm pretty excited about the, but now I'm excited about the return trip because this is the part of the journey that's all about restoration. This is all about restoration, and we are in the season of waiting as a church, and, but I believe we're preparing for a season of movement, and I think that what's going to characterize this movement for the Emmaus Church community in Lincoln, California, is this call to the restoration of all things. We need to participate in the restoration of all things. Beginning with ourselves, what in the world does that mean? Beginning with yourselves, your past, 
needs to be restored. Your pain needs to be restored. Your sin, your mistakes, my sin, my disappointments, my fears need to be restored. And then, as a community uh, where we share life and continue to discover Jesus together, and, and and we just can't get stuck at the table. We gather around the table every Sunday. We can't get stuck at the table. We can't just talk about our lives and our kids and our careers and our marriages and our plans. Restoration of all things for our community means that we come alongside each other and we do the hard work of restoration. We help each other restore the faith, uh, our children's faith. We help help one another restore hope in our marriages. We help one another recover meaning in our careers and in the lives that we're living. And then finally and ultimately, that as a community of restoration, we work together for the restoration of all things in the world, right? So I see us getting our hands even dirtier in the next season uh, of, of the, the ministry of the church called Emmaus. I see us getting involved in people's lives who really need help. And we've started, and we want to continue, and we want to lean more in that direction, the direction of recovery and, and um, ministries that are messy because they're dealing with complicated issues that are just easier, frankly, to not touch and talk about. But let's get involved in that because we want to see restoration on that level. I see more ministries of our church, in other words, happening outside of our church. More ministries outside of our church. And I, and I see us becoming just this outpost of uh, the community, outpost of the kingdom of God in the world. That's what I think we're called to be where the broken experience, the healing of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit all for the glory of God. Where the broken experience the healing of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not by your own power, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, all for the glory of God. Not your own aggrandizement, not your own pedestal, but you receive healing from Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Amen? I feel like God is clarifying things for us. I'm excited about it because I feel like it's part of my role is to cast vision. I know that this is a a sermon about the church and all of us are filled with personal problems and concerns and doubts and needs this morning. This isn't necessarily a personal sermon, but I hope that you will find increasing meaning and purpose in your involvement and commitment to a church community with a vision that will hopefully, by God's grace, um, impact individuals in a way that totally restores things, totally changes things, makes an ultimate difference in their life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray uh, to God for grace to engage in his mission of restoration. We love you, Lord. You've captivated us. At some point, uh, we've, been, uh, we've been deeply affected by your love. Somebody demonstrated to us something that was so real and different that we held on to it or we came back to it or we're reaching for it even if we haven't quite engaged it yet. And I pray that you would enable us to be the church, that you enable us as individuals to uh, be fully yours and that as we engage in the work of the church, that the, the, the city would be changed, that the county would be changed, That even in some ways the world would be changed as we engage in injustice in places that we've never even been before. I pray, God, for um, a filling of your spirit to enable us 
um, to grow and to be healed and to be filled with power so that we can do good work in your name. Amen. Amen. Right. I feel like boxing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome.